Well, just before we go ahead, go into the topic, I just want to say a little more something, a little bit more about something I mentioned yesterday about the five ways. As I said, I think that Thomas's presentations in the Summa are not are not exactly full fledged proofs. They're kind of sketches that need to be filled out. And you might wonder why he does that. If that's true, why does he do that? Mm. And I think the reason, one reason at least, is that we're in a work of theology, right? The Summa Theologiae. And that's the science of God. And Thomas holds that no science <clears throat> proves the existence of its own subject matter. Right? So if the subject's existence can be proved, that belongs to another science, that proof. And he, I think it's clear he thinks that proving the existence of God belongs to philosophy. It's natural theology, if you like. Um, and I think we can also say that he's kind of supposing that readers of the Summa will have already gone through a pretty thorough philosophical curriculum. Right? May not always be the case, but I think he's assuming that. Um, so he can, I think he thinks he can just kind of sum things up for us here in, in the Summa. But luckily, at least for the fifth way, there is a pretty good philosophical source that I, I think we can assume that he approves of, which is his own commentary on Aristotle's physics. Um, because in the course of his commentary, Thomas, in book two, Thomas kind of goes out of his way even to explain in detail the, I, what I think is the very same argument that you get in the fifth way. So I'm going to talk about the fifth way, um, relying a lot on the physics passage, and then kind of bring out some things, not about, not so much about the divine goodness, which is what Candace was going to talk about, although I'll say something about it, that at the end, um, but mostly about the divine intellect, another attribute of God. So let's go into the argument. That's the, the handout. He says a fifth way is gathered from the government of things. To govern, as he explains elsewhere, it means to direct something's activity to a goal. So his aim is to help us focus on how certain things engage in purposeful activity and to help us see that this implies their subjection to a governor, a divine governor. I said certain things. I think that's interesting. Thomas, he doesn't ask us here to lift our gaze at once to the whole world and to the order in the whole world. He knows that way of arguing. He uses that way of arguing for God in other places. Um, he, sometimes he likens the world to a, a well-run household, so there must be somebody in charge. But in the, here in the fifth way, he only cites a particular class of things. For we see that some things that lack cognition, namely natural bodies, work for a goal. Of course, that's a pretty big class. Right? It includes rocks and lakes and the air and stars and planets and plants. But it does leave some things out. It doesn't include animals, since they have cognition. And it also excludes bodies that are not natural. For example, artificial bodies, like a car or a computer. Whether or not they have cognition themselves, their activity is obviously strongly influenced by the cognition, the intelligence 
of the human designers or the programmers or the users. And Thomas wants us to focus on things that, cases that involve really no human influence. So his next step is to produce evidence to show that natural bodies lack cognition, lack, natural bodies lacking cognition work for goals. And the evidence is a fact whose description is somewhat complex. I've split it into two parts on the handout. First part is always, or for the most part, they work in the same way. Now, I think hardly anyone would deny that. It means that there is regularity in nature. Things of the same kind tend to act in the same way. Rocks tend to fall, trees tend to grow. Without tendencies in things, there wouldn't be any such thing as natural science. If acid were as likely to turn litmus paper blue as red, then the litmus test would be no test at all. Some tendencies can fail. A seed may never sprout. But such failures do not happen for no reason. They happen because the thing that fails coincides with something else that obstructs its tendency. So the seed is eaten by a bird. And for Thomas, that's what chance is, a coincidence that leads to some result other than what something involved in the coincidence was tending toward. He doesn't deny the existence of chance, but he thinks chance itself requires tendencies and things. For example, the bird eats the seed out of that tendency, which is called hunger. But in the fifth way, Thomas isn't satisfied only to establish the mere presence of tendencies in things. He insists on tendencies of a very specific type. They work in the same way such that they reach that which is best. Whence it is plain that they arrive at the goal, not by chance, but out of a tendency. That's a much more controversial claim. And Thomas knew himself knew of thinkers who would deny it. So why does he insist upon it? I think he needs it because the conclusion that he has in view um, is, re requires it, that the activities of natural things are governed by an intellect. I think that explains it. Thomas, take, Thomas takes it as axiomatic that intellect as such acts for true goals, that is, for goods. A tendency that is not toward a good is not in itself fully intelligible or fully intelligent. And we all know that. If you see somebody, if you see a friend going off on a bad path, you might say to him or her, hey, don't be stupid. To the, to the extent that we act intelligently, to that extent at least, we act well. Of course, you might act stupidly and still get a good result. Even if you know nothing about archery, you might get lucky right, once or twice, and you might hit the target. But if you hit the target time and again, almost never failing, no one would say that it was mere luck. And even if you fail with some frequency owing to adverse conditions or limited skill, if in each instance you have come as close as it was then in your power, if you've truly done your best to hit it, then it's still clear that you were shooting for the target and not aimlessly. That's what St. Thomas is saying about natural things. How they usually act, or tend to act, yields the result which is best. That is, 
as good as is in their power. And this means that they are really tending toward that good. They're not just getting lucky. So at this point, I think the question arises, what exactly is this good that Thomas is talking about? Well, obviously, it's not our good. Right? It may not be so clear these days at this conference, but the elements are not always so friendly toward us. Right? right? Weather isn't always so nice and everything else. He's talking about the, is he talking about the good of the world as a whole? I think he does think that all things do ultimately tend toward the good of the world as a whole. But I don't think that's what he has in mind here. I think instead it's, it's what he says explicitly in the commentary on the physics. Every natural thing tends toward what is good and best for the thing itself, according to its own nature. Which is to say, it tends toward the fullness of being, maybe we can say that, that is suited to its species or to its kind. What is that? The examples that he gives in the physics commentary indicate that it is chiefly the conservation of the kind in its specific being, and also in its specific activity. That is the very activity toward which things of that kind tend and which most favors this very result, which is the kind's conservation. It's a kind of circle, but it's a good one. The activity to which a natural thing tends both flows from its nature and promotes the nature. He gives some examples. Teeth normally get positioned in the way that serves the ingestion of food. Feet usually grow in the best way for walking. Plant roots grow in the way that favors nourishment. Foliage protects the fruits. Of course, fruits contain seeds, which promote the kind quite directly, and so on. However, we shouldn't overlook the fact that in the fifth way, Thomas isn't talking only about living bodies. He thinks his claim applies even to inanimate bodies. Quite generally, he is sure that absolutely all substances tend toward the conservation of their being according to their natures. So I think his overall idea is very basic. It's that natural beings come in various kinds, and there's no kind that does not tend to stay in being. No natural kind of thing simply self-destructs. It's good for such kinds of things to be, and they themselves do their best to go on being. Of course, the term best implies a comparison. We have to be thinking of their possibly doing otherwise. But as a matter of fact, things sometimes do act in ways other than they naturally tend to act, owing to unusual conditions. But what we see <clears throat> is that abnormal functioning is usually worse. As Thomas says, if a foot gets out of its natural position, it does not serve for walking. How things usually act is usually better for them than any unusual way in which they are ever observed to act. Okay, the argument's next step then is this. Now, those things that do not have cognition do not tend toward a goal unless they are directed by something with cognition and intellect, as the arrow by the archer. The example of the arrow should be clear, I think. It, should, it may also be a bit misleading, 
I'll talk about that later. Mm, but we should be struck, I think, by how unconditionally Thomas speaks here. He does not qualify his claim in any way, nor does he offer any reason for it. He only gives the example of the arrow. Maybe to him the claim is too obvious to need a reason, but at least it won't be obvious to us if we aren't sure how he understands the terms that are involved in it. I think it's interesting he uses two terms, cognition and intellect. Those are not synonymous, obviously. Sensation also is a kind of cognition. Sensation and intellect are both two kinds of cognition. So I think we can start with a more general question. Why does he hold that at least some kind of cognition, at least sensation, is needed for goal-directed activity? After that, we can ask why sensation is not enough. You need intellect. Let's stay with the example of the arrow. An archer shoots an arrow toward a target. What's the goal? Well, you might say it's the target, or you might want to be more precise and say it's the arrow is hitting the target. I think Thomas can accept both answers. But he would say in either case, the arrow's having a tendency toward the goal would not be possible without someone's cognition somehow influencing the arrow. If the goal is simply the target, well, the arrow and the archer are here, and the target is over there. The target is not in the archer or in the arrow, and yet there's a tendency toward the target in them. It's in the archer who means for the arrow to hit the target, and by the way in which the archer handles the arrow, that tendency comes to be in the arrow itself. So in the archer and in the arrow, there exists something that is quite bound up with the target, centered on the target, formed around the target, and that's the tendency toward the target. But the target isn't there in them. The tendency is a function of the target, but the target is not there where the tendency is. How is that possible? Well, the answer is obvious. The archer sees the target. The target is over there, but it has a certain presence over here in the archer's eyesight. And by virtue of that, the archer can aim the arrow at the target. I think this is pretty clear. I, don't, I, I was going to talk about imagination, imagining the future event of hitting the target. You know, if that's the goal, then you need imagination. The future event doesn't even exist yet, here or there or anywhere. And yet it governs the movement. I think that's clear. I don't have to go into more detail. Now, as Thomas understands them, not only the external senses such as eyesight, but also imagination are classified as kinds of sensation. They're not intellect. Many other animals have them. A dog chasing a rabbit is imagining something like eating the rabbit or something like that. I don't know exactly what he's imagining. He's in that, he's in the rat, what's the rabbit? He's in the condition that... Dr. Gorman told us yesterday, that that kind of anxious condition. But the fifth way is saying that if there is to be action that is truly ordered to a goal, intellect has to play a role too. To explain why, I think we can consider two points, a general point and a specific point. The general point is that any tendency to a goal is a function not only of the goal, but also of the thing that has the tendency. The thing has to be so disposed as to be proportioned to the act of moving toward the goal. 
It's not enough for the archer to aim toward the target. The thing that he aims toward, it has to be something that a bow can shoot accurately and that can strike the target. He doesn't just grab things at random and try to shoot them. He grabs an arrow, right? not a rabbit or a cheesecake or something. Right? And, of course, arrows don't just appear out of the blue. Someone has to make the arrows. First of all, someone has to excogitate the arrows, figure out how, to, how a thing might be made fit or proportioned to the sort of movement that arrows are for. Quite generally, comparing things and determining the proportions among them is a work proper to intellect. Sensation doesn't do that. You know, the Latin, the Latin word for, for reason is ratio. Um, in English, has just come to mean proportion, ratio, proportion. Okay. Only intellect or reason knows ratios, knows proportions. <clears throat> the, other, <clears throat> the other point, excuse me, the, the more specific point has to do with what I mentioned before, that the precise goal toward which Thomas sees natural things tending is the chiefly the conservation and being of their kinds or their natures. To order a thing toward a goal requires grasping the goal, obviously, and this particular goal, the nature or being of a thing, is grasped only by intellect. You can see and imagine a cow, but how do you know whether what you see or imagine is a cow? Well, you know it by comparing it with what it is to be a cow. That is, with the co- what the concept of cow expresses. Neither eyesight nor imagination make concepts, only inter- intellect does. You know that Bessie is a cow. Bessie doesn't know it. Nevertheless, and that's Thomas's point, cows tend to go on being cows that is fitting the concept of cow as long as they can. And they even tend to make other things be cows. Such tendency must originate from an agent that does know what a cow is, an intellectual agent. So the fact that natural things have genuine tendencies toward good goals shows that they are under the influence of an intellect. The oak tree does not put its leaves into the ground and its roots into the air. That would be stupid. But here we have a rather, rather here we have a subtle distinction though. For the idea is that trees act intelligently even though they don't have any intellect. How can we see that? If the tree is always acting, always or for the most part acting in the same way so as to reach what is best, shows that it acts intelligently, what shows that it nonetheless has no intellect? I think the answer is the very same thing. That is, it's acting always or for the most part in the same way. For it will act in that way even under abnormal conditions in which that way does it no good. What acts with intellect can at least try to adjust to proportion its act to the new conditions. A cypress plant transplanted from the swamp to the desert will not suddenly adapt to the low water supply. It will behave as it always does, and it will die. Here's a, here's a homely comparison, if you want. You set your alarm to go off every day at 6 a.m. You know why. It's in order to get to work on time. And it does that job just fine. 
But if you leave it at that, it will also go off on holidays when you could sleep in. The alarm is governed by an intellect, but the intellect is not in the alarm. That is, it's not acting with its own intellect. But of course, it does take an intellect to make an alarm, or even an arrow. And the reason why they need an intellect to make them is also why trees do, and why all the other kinds of natural things do. And so Thomas can conclude, therefore there is something intelligent by which all natural things are ordered toward a goal, and this we call a god. If we have accepted the steps of the argument up to this point, can we quarrel with this conclusion? If we acknowledge that a mind governing everything in the physical world, if we acknowledge a mind governing everything in the physical world, is there any objection to calling it a god? Well, maybe there is. We may also have doubts about other steps in the way, but I'm just going to focus on this one, the fifth way. Mm. Resolving it, I think, helps to see, understand the whole way, and it's quite relevant to our, to our topic for this conference. The issue is whether, after all, the fifth way gives us a being that is truly fit to be called a god. Thomas himself, as I mentioned yesterday, with the fourth way, he insists that for anything to deserve the name of God, it has to be quite different from everything else. Being a god means being in a class by oneself. How different is the God of the fifth way from human beings, or at least from the human mind? Doesn't it sound as though this God is simply the human mind writ large? Our minds can rule over a few things, over arrows and alarms and robots, and make them act in certain ways. The God of the fifth way seems to be nothing but a mind that is lucky enough or smart enough to rule over natural things, all natural things, and make them act as they do. In other words, it sounds rather like the famous line by Joyce Kilmer. Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. Poets make poems, engineers make robots, professors make lectures, God makes trees. Does the mere fact that someone can make trees whereas we can't mean that we should call that person a god? I don't think so. You know, the fact is I can't make poems either. Right? I've tried to do so, and I, it's terrible. Should I therefore treat poets as gods? You know, maybe students should treat their professors as gods. You know? But that's not because they can make lectures. That's not the reason why. <laughs> for a different reason. But this objection rests, rests on a misunderstanding, I think. The idea is not that we can't make trees and that whoever can is a god. As a matter of fact, Thomas is not saying that only God can make trees. Other things can too. Trees can. They do it all the time. Trees make trees and cows make cows and dog makes, dogs make dogs, and people make people. Aristotle says that reproduction is the most natural activity of all, and Thomas agrees with him about that. The fifth way is not denying that. On the contrary, I think that's kind of the real point right there of the fifth way. Trees don't know what a tree is, but they make trees. 
And before doing that, they make themselves go on being trees. They can do that because even their parts tend toward their going on being trees. Their parts tend to be just as they are in the tree, to stay together in it and to act just as they do in it, treeishly. This is the tendency toward the goal that we've been talking about all along, the conservation in being of the nature of the thing's kind. To have a nature means precisely to have such a tendency. Poems do not make other poems. Lectures do not make lectures. Thanks be to God. Maybe a robot can be programmed to make other robots, but the parts of the robot have no real tendency to be together and to keep the robot going. They don't share in robot nature. There is no such nature. There are only the natures of metal and plastic and so forth. And that's why I said that the example of the arrow might be a little bit misleading. As Thomas himself explains, when we give a tendency to a thing, as in the case of the archer giving the arrow a tendency toward the target, the tendency is merely imposed or forced upon the thing. It's not stable in the thing and does not reach into all the thing's parts. A tendency that we give to a thing is never a natural tendency. It never, so to speak, takes root in the thing itself. It's never integrated into the thing's own identity, a factor in what it is to be that thing. A natural tendency is one that a thing has just because it is that kind of thing. We don't give such tendencies. We may discover them, unleash them, but we don't make them. But they do exist, and the fifth way is saying that there must be a kind of mind that can cause them. Now, the tendencies of things are their ways of producing or causing certain results. So to say that there is a mind that causes natural tendencies is to say that there is a mind that causes natural things to cause what they do. It is not that only God can make trees. It is that trees make trees, naturally, and that only a God can make them do so. The fundamental idea, then, is one that St. Thomas, with other medieval thinkers, expressed in lapidary Latin with the words, opus nature est opus intelligentiae. A work of nature is a work of intelligence. It sounds like a very simple idea, And in a way it is, but it's also very subtle in how it navigates, I think, between two extremes in the understanding of God's relationship to the world, extremes that are not at all uncommon. I think even believers, serious-minded believers, sometimes slip into one or the other extreme. One extreme is, is the view that what is apparently caused by nature is really caused by God. Christians have at least been accused of holding this view. Martin Heidegger says that the Christian idea of creation has stifled the ancient experience of nature. Instead of nature, which Heidegger, I think, rightly understands as a kind of power and a tendency that's seated in the thing itself, the natural thing itself, he thinks Christians see only, so to speak, divine technology. God plying his craft just as we ply ours, imposing his aims on things, not letting them be and act as the things that they are. Heidegger is saying that the creator God 
is but the human mind writ large, and that it overwrites nature. About this, however, I think we have to look again at Thomas's commentary on the physics. He, there he does speak of God's craft, or what we could call God's technology. But he, and he says that unlike human craftsmen, God can put his craft itself into the things that are made by it. He says that it, it's as if a shipbuilder could put the very art of shipbuilding into the wood so that the wood would grow into a ship on its own. In that case, there would be such a thing as the nature of a ship. In other words, God's craft does not replace or obliterate the natures and things. It's the cause of the natures of things. Natures cause many things, and God causes them to cause those things. To say that a work of nature is a work of intelligence is to affirm nature, not to suppress it. So that's one extreme, the view that God's causality substitutes the causality of nature. The other extreme is that God's causality merely completes or finishes off the causality of nature, merely picks up, so to speak, where nature leaves off. On that view, nature provides the materials, and then God works the materials up into a fully formed, well-finished product. That sort of view does indeed see God's relation to natural things as essentially just like ours. And I think many arguments for the existence of a God are sort of of that sort. There's a famous one, as you know, going back to the 18th century, which invites us to see the entire universe as a finely tuned, complex machine, a watch. The mindless natures of things suffice to provide the materials out of which the watch is made, but only an intelligence could fine-tune them and coordinate them in such intricate and complex ways. I think that rather like that argument are the ones, most of the ones anyway, that go under, go by the name of intelligent design. But I'm not going to go into that now. In any case, that's not the argument of the fifth way. In fact, Thomas thinks that the natures of things, the non-intelligent natures of things, can give rise to extremely complex and finely tuned works. On his view, the nature of any living thing, any organism, does precisely that. The soul is a source of extremely complex movements and organs and things like that. But the fifth way is arguing that all bodily natures, even those whose effects are extremely simple or elementary, must themselves be caused by a divine mind. The work of any nature is a work of intelligence. That, again, is because every nature tends toward what is best for it. Once we fully grasp this idea that a work of nature is the work of a mind, I think we can see that the God which the fifth way presents to us is not just the human mind writ large. We know how to make some things, but we have no notion of what it is to make the natures of things. All of our makings, Thomas insists, are nothing but imitations of the ways of making things that we see in nature. That's how our nature is made to work. Our nature is not just an effect of God's mind, it is an image of that mind, but it's only an image. It's not another mind of the same kind. So to finish, you know, originally Professor Vogler 
was, was going to speak on the fifth way in the divine goodness. So I thought I ought to say at least something about that um, very briefly. I think it's clear that the fifth way is not really presenting God primarily as good or as the highest good. In fact, we sort of get that in the fourth way, don't we? The fifth is presenting him as the highest intelligence. But perhaps the fifth way does contribute something to the understanding of the goodness of God and maybe especially to the infinity of the goodness of God. And I'm thinking there of um, the first objection in the reply to the, to the article of the five ways, which I've also put on the handout. So maybe we can look at that. The objection there, we might call it the problem of evil. I'd say maybe we should say a problem of evil. Because I don't think it's quite the one that usually goes by that name. The usual objection focuses on the idea that God, if he exists, is an intellectual and a voluntary agent and a morally good one. And then the objection argues that the existence of evil in the world shows that, in fact, he does not exist because his permission of it would itself be morally evil. He would have no good excuse, at least for some of the evils that we see. Answering that objection seems to require finding good excuses for God, justifying the ways of God to man, as they say. But the objection that Thomas addresses is not to a God understood merely as morally good. It's to a God understood as infinitely good. The objection is not that if he existed, he would not permit evil. It's that his very existence would utterly overpower evil and make it impossible. In any case, and that's what he says. If one of a pair of contraries were infinite, it would totally destroy the other contrary. So if you have an infinite heat, there just won't be any cold. It just can't be. His reply is to the effect that the objector is, the objector is treating goodness as something physical, like heat, something that simply pours itself forth mindlessly and uniformly as much as it can and in so doing, it pushes its opposite out of its way right? whenever and wherever it can do so. But that's not how the good functions. At least, it's not how an infinite good would function. To be sure, since power is a good, what is infinitely good will be infinitely powerful. And so it will be able to overpower any evil. Right? But intelligence is a good, too. And what is infinitely good would have intelligence and would act in an intelligent way, which is to say, in an orderly way. And with a being of this sort, he argues, this is his reply, it's so simple, it's really Augustine's argument, the existence of evil is not incompatible. God is, quote, powerful enough and good enough to draw good even from evil, which is to say to order what is evil to what is good, to handle it intelligently and wisely. Ordering is a work of wisdom. Now, I suppose it's to be understood here that the good that, that God draws from evil 
will be such as to justify, so to speak, or to excuse his permission of the evil. But Thomas here doesn't try to do any of the justifying or the excusing. And I think that's especially where the fifth way comes in. It tells us that he's intelligent, but I think especially here it's pertinent. The fifth way shows in a concrete way by the fact that God is an intelligence that makes natures, that his intelligence is quite different from ours. He understands things that we simply cannot understand. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so there's no reason to expect that we can always understand the justice of his ways. But we should at least be able to understand that if he is infinitely good, lacking in no good at all, then he cannot be lacking in good excuses either. That's all. Thank you.